Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Nick and I sit down with Daniel Foch, who we met at a conference recently, and it became very apparent, we were on a panel together about real estate, and it became very apparent that this guy can hold his own when it comes to the economy, different economic data, real estate, geopolitics. He's 31 years old, and to get this type of perspective from a 31-year-old, for me, was rather impressive, so we definitely wanted to sit down with him on the podcast and pick his brain. He does a great job on Twitter on sharing all sorts of economic data, Canadian and otherwise, but he does share a lot of Canadian data. He is one of the co-hosts of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast with his friend, Nick Hill. So we sit down here, we go through a whole bunch of topics. Nick's with us for about the first half of the show, then he had to bolt to go do something with his daughter. And Daniel and I continue the conversation. We go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes. So just a real pleasure getting to know him a little bit better. Really grateful for what he shares on all his different social media platforms. By the way, I share, um, he's on Twitter and we'll have links in the show notes to his Twitter handle, but he's also on Instagram and TikTok and he's sharing all these economic sound bites really, really well done in a short period of time on these different social media platforms. So you definitely want to check him out and see what he's sharing. We're just big fans. So thrilled to be able to bring Daniel to you on this podcast. And if you are listening to this and you're trying to surround yourself with Canadians who are trying to figure out the money system, trying to figure out how real estate works in this country, trying to figure out if real estate's a good investment or if it's not a good investment. When do you buy real estate? What types do you buy? You can check out something we're putting, we've put together for over a decade now called the Rockstar Inner Circle. It's a membership that we run and you can find all the details of that by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. So that's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. We have a whole bunch of different classes. We share a bunch of different um, economic reports with members monthly. We have events that we host. We just concluded one of our big ones, the Your Life, Your Terms event. So you can find out all the details on what you get by becoming a Rockstar Inner Circle member by visiting that website. That's enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. No, but I, I do think it is. Um, it really, We're live with Daniel Foch. Foch, yeah. Um, it's a reflection of like just what the industry has accomplished, like in a negative way that people are afraid to like say, like nobody's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a realtor. Like, you know, like. Uh, proudly. What's that guy from um, Modern Family where you like. Oh my God, my, uh, Phil pin? Dunphy. Yeah, Phil Dunphy, like the best, the best, right? Nobody's like, nobody in Canada is like that. We're like embarrassed. No. Like kind of <laughs> like, oh, I'm in real estate. It's like, so you're a realtor? Yeah. Well, no, like kind of private equity. Yeah. It's like, so you're a landlord. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't really, because I tell people, I'm like, well, you don't really do like, you know, not the, the typical thing. We kind of do something else. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Every, but I know, like none of us are just like, yes, I'm a, I'm a real estate agent and I sell people, no. help people speculate on property. When and, my friends want to make fun of me directly, they're right. like, hey, listen, you're a real estate yeah. agent. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. shit. Yeah. Especially for those of us who like really do make an effort to be honest and like be in touch with the economy and all that stuff. 
trying at least i think i feel like we're we're trying which is i have no idea how you put out as much content as you do about the economy either why, why? <laughs> i don't know <laughs> do anyone listening you gotta listen to you gotta um follow daniel on twitter what's your twitter feed let's just uh, it's okay. daniel underscore Foch. okay yeah. and, and we'll link to it yeah um but the amount of great stuff that you put out there is really incredible it's high Thanks. level stuff what is the back like why are you able to speak that way like what's your background um, well, I did an undergrad in like I did BCom in real estate. Um, okay, so that was useless. Now let's yeah. go to the next. Yeah, let's yeah, go to the next. Yeah. <laughs> I did a the UBC like I did their appraiser course. I guess postgraduate certificate in valuation, um, but I never wrote the exit exam, so I guess that doesn't even really. Count. Uh, but you might have learned something there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, okay. And then I've honestly just done like a lot of like continuing education stuff, and just really been fascinated by the economy. Like uh, I used to just go on like edX and do IMF has a bunch of courses, like the international. Yeah, they're free, totally free super cool if you want to learn about a bunch about the economy. Yeah. Um, so I did like all of their, I think like every single IMF course and just read a ton, like read a lot of books. Um, I was also raised by like, both my parents are real estate professionals, but my dad was like really a real estate bear. Um, and kind of like similar to, you know, your guys' perspective on things, just like, you know, very realistic and critical of the system and whether or not it works. And um, was kind of, like understood that things were broken heading into 0708 was liquid at that period of time. And that really was like a life changing moment. And so I think seeing all of that take place really helped mm. for me. Um, that, so may, I, I would say probably all of those things and just like always being in the industry surrounded by it, but also like really self-aware and cognizant of from the outside looking in. How is it being a real estate bear? Did you use the word real estate bear? Yeah, I how is definitely it? Okay. still bearish probably. Yeah, so how is it being a real estate bear? And then we were just talking before recording about in nominal terms, you know, the price going up. Yeah. How is it being a real estate bear and then looking in nominal terms, the price of real estate in the last 10 years in this area? Like how do you, you know, how do you kind of live with those two concepts at the same time? Yeah, I, I would say that um, I haven't always been bearish, but like I think when things started to get off the rails, um, after 2017, after that correction, I was like, this is where, and that probably from my perspective, had COVID not happened and the 0.25 overnight rate not happened, that might've been our long-term peak. Like we'd probably still be kind of on the long-term bottom and nominally growing back towards that peak. Um, and so I was, I was like optimistic about the market and felt that it had corrected and people could afford houses again and stuff like that. Um, and then, so in 2019, things were kind of recovering a little mm -hmm. bit into 2020. And then once the rate dropped, I was like, it's over. Like, this is just going to be a flood, but I was still bearish at that point. And then when prices started to ramp up 2021, 2022, it was tough to tell when it was, it's really hard to tell when the market's going to run out of steam. Right. That was wild. Um, yeah. We, are, we well, shared this before that one of the guys on our team took Christmas off and he came back in January and he said, uh, am I wrong? Or did prices just go up in the last 30 days? 30%. Right. I'm like, yeah, no, in that pocket, yeah, they were like, you're about like, right. No, that's yeah. like actually about right. Yeah. And he's like, in a month? Yeah. I'm like, and the Bank of Canada that month came out and didn't raise rates. That's yeah. when I threw my, like, just threw up everything in the air. I'm like, okay, if you're not raising yeah, rates, they February. raised the very next month. Yeah, yeah they raised in February. But I mean, why, like, it's just a frustrating point for me because, you know, even if they didn't know what was happening and, and they, they dropped rates that low because when, when COVID hit, that's fine. Okay, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. But like, it was only a few months later, not not two years later that you need to wait to be like, oh right. shit, this thing's ripping. Like we yeah. should probably do something yeah. now. All of what's happening right now could have been avoided had they raised like end of 2021. And every, like, yeah. I think anyone 
who with half a brain all the bank economists are saying that like you know inflation started ripping and they could have but i i do think Just that seeing you on the camera angle this come face a little bit this way so there yeah, we go. Sure. there we go there we go yeah so the i think that the, the the challenge is that we had to follow the federal reserve and they, i don't think they wanted to to crank it up too much because otherwise like they would have made cad too strong and I, I, there's consequences in either direction on that i think they kind of want to stay in the channel that they're in and so they just were forced into a role of following right that's interesting that that's why we thought sorry i was gonna no. say, that's why we thought they didn't raise in january because we thought they were the test case for the fed yeah because sometimes we know that that those that's what we were saying to ourselves right? we're like the fed asked them not to raise just to see right what would happen and maybe. then they were like oh shit okay yeah, yeah. that's wrong yeah, let's, yeah. Start yeah. Raising. Yeah, yeah. let's start raising maybe yeah i feel like sometimes why Canada is, is no... used a little bit by the fed just to test the narrative test the well. communication small market relative to the u.s yeah. doesn't really matter to the u.s test it out i always feel like we're their little playground on some communication i've never really thought about it that way but it would be very funny if that was the case well there was yeah little, there was like, like who cares about canada yeah that's kind of how <laughs> oh, i see yeah. like hey let's try canada not <laughs> raising see, right yeah. now let's see how bad it gets up there <laughs> totally when i see them uh talk and and just you see how connected they are right? i mean how long ago was mark carney the bank of canada i forget now but it doesn't it wasn't that long was well, you just carney? saw when he came from goldman how connected everybody was that was really the point for me that i thought oh Okay, like these, this is an old boys club. They all used to work together. They're not even calling official channels. They're like texting each other. Well, hey, yeah. Mark, try this up in Canada. See what happens. Well, then yeah, he went to yeah. England. He went to England and was doing, doing yeah. it over there. So you don't think that they're having yeah. conversation? Yeah. Like, yeah, totally. But so where are you then? What's your thinking now? Like, wh where are we? Fall of 2023. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I know none of us have the crystal ball. That, that would be naive. But like, where are we headed the next six months or three years? Whatever time frame you want to choose, where are we going? I, if I had to guess, I would say probably like, nominal price falls until end of 2024 and then kind of flat lines for a year or two. It's really going to depend on the path of rates, but like I'm modeling in my head that rates end up probably settling in the fours, which solves a lot of problems for the current world where fives and sixes are very difficult to refinance with. Um, so it, four is like high, but it doesn't bearable. Yeah. I mean, I think your long-term interest rate for the past hundred years is like 4.1%. Yeah. That's about average. So like that's, um, like that's probably where it should be higher than inflation. Like we can't have net uh, negative rates, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was one of the big problems was with the rate of inflation and rates so low, it was fi the financially responsible thing to do to lever up and buy anything, mm -hmm. like literally anything. Cause in, it would just go up in value based on inflation. But don't we need net negative inflation? Because net negative because rates. The, yeah. Sorry, net negative rates because the debt. Like, don't we ultimately need that? Because they need that to, to inflate it away. Yeah, in some yeah. in some capacity, and I, whether or not like the, the officially stated inflation number might be three percent. Yeah. They, you know, because they did put have studies and reports about letting it stay higher than two percent before this all all happened. So maybe you know, so maybe they leave it at four. The the number's three. So they're like, oh yeah, you know, rates are kind of positive, but really the amount of currency that are pumping into the system is at seven or eight percent. Yeah. You, you know, I I don't know. That's just. I don't see because we talk about this. A lot. Yeah, that's a big. What you're way. talking about is what we debate all the time. So yeah. you're thinking real rates will stay positive. I think they or or like neutral, right? Like they mm -hmm. kind of want to stay in that neutral range, and and probably behind the curtain, your inflation rate is probably higher, far higher than what they're saying it is. Um, and and we are in an environment in which debt probably is getting inflated away, um, but. They, but it, on paper, it looks like they've yeah. stuck to their okay, mandate. Okay, got it. Got so it. the official rate could look neutral, slightly positive. I can even, see that because they got to save face, right? Yeah, I well, you, yeah, they can't come out and say, "Oh, we've revised the, the neutral range to three percent," like because then every like nobody trusts. We're kind of going down the line of like 
who trusts what, like people like, <laughs> like and uh, I don't know if you guys have read the fourth turning. Oh. It's like one of, yeah. So and we then did a whole one, breakdown yeah. of for all our clients. We like, did a book summary. I yeah. have it up no, here. I thought, so I thought it was right there, yeah. Have you read the new one? I, I started to, I bought yeah. it. I couldn't get into it. Yeah, did you fair. read it? I'm listening to the audio book right oh, now. Okay. Maybe I should, here, okay maybe I should listen yeah. to it. Then. It's really good. Yeah. It's okay. just, it's very, it's, it's a, a lot less theoretical and more practical because it's unfolding right now. Um, but, uh, I think that like the erosion of faith in institutions, like he describes there, you're seeing it happen right now, right? And government and like central banks is like the last one. And that's really like the actual primary mechanism of control that uh, government, whether it's fiscal and monetary side or administrative side has over people, right? I knew I got along with Daniel. <laughs> but it, Go on, keep it, it is, Go right? On. Like keep going. if you can control the, the flow of money and the way that we spend it and the amount that we have, um, and the way it's distributed among classes, then you can kind of like, it, it, that's a system of governance. And if the, if the, if they revised the neutral range, which is like the only, they really only have one mandate in the States, I guess they have two full employment and, uh, neutral inflation. But if they revised away from that, like the faith that the, mm -hmm. that's the last tenet that the government has, I think where people still kind of believe in their ability to fix things and control things. And they're, right now, I think they're proving the fact that they have control by showing people that they can grind the economy to a halt by just tripling the capital cost. And then do you think then if rates go to that like 4% range, most Canadians refinance and the banks are then okay? Because I think you've been sharing the stats that we're all seeing on how, what percentage of RBC, CIBC, whatever Canadian bank is over the original amortization. Yeah. You think, and I think the bulk of those mortgages come due in 2025, I think. The, the big one starts, is, like a, next year's a growth, but then 2025 is like the biggest jump. And 2026 is actually bigger than 2025. Not the jump, but the num the actual number. Oh, is it? Right. Yeah. Oh, I thought the peak was, re okay. no, it, the, the biggest jump is into 25 and then the, the peak I believe is 26. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think then at that rate, if they're in around the fours, um, the banks squeak through with enough Canadians refinancing, or are we potentially looking at more power of sales in Ontario and foreclosures across Canada than we're used to? I think we're already seeing like the, the power of sale trend start. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it'll sustain, like, I don't think the, the thing that a lot of people discount is like the banks don't really care. Like, unless it's a material loss, um, which it very rarely is because there's so much equity padding. Um, they don't like, they, they could care less. It sucks to have to take somebody. It's like an annoying thing to do to take somebody power sale, you know, go to court, mm -hmm. have it show up on the MLS that your bank made a bad loan and whatever, but they, any of the money that is left over goes to the seller, the owner, they recuperate at any of their costs. And if they're, if they, if it does materialize in a loss, then it shows up on their books. And I mean, that's why they're all increasing their loan loss provisions over the past several mm -hmm. quarters. The question becomes, do some of the Canadian banks or some have some of the Canadian banks um, maybe understated or underestimated the loan loss provisions that they're going to need moving forward? I would say that some might, but it's probably out of the scope of things that I should be analyzing. So that's what I'm curious about, because when they on their quarterly calls, when they're talking about the number of loans that are in distress, the numbers are still relatively low. And I'm just wondering if they're understating them a little bit or you know, because I'm like, with this much an interest rate moves, you'd think there'd be a little bit more going on. And I know a lot of them haven't renewed yet, but I mean, I'm talking even like at the Scotia ones because they have the floating, the floating yeah. payment. And I'm just, because then I'm thinking if it goes back down to 4%, that based on what, the, if they were actually truthful in their numbers now, it's it's probably fairly manageable, but I, I'm not convinced that. So that's painting a picture like getting through this with some pain, but it's 
gonna be okay. Well, that's what happened in the '90s. Like it sucked, mm-hmm. but we're here. Everybody. It was a grind. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, some people. A lot of boomers decided that speculating on real estate was a bad idea and didn't do it again. Mm-hmm. And now we have a new generation of real estate speculators. Mm-hmm. We're going to learn the same thing, probably. Um, Back then, real estate went up from 1996 and 1998, two years after it went down for six years. And I'll never forget a good friend of mine sat me down because we were starting talking about buying our first homes back then. And he said, Tom, it's real estate's gone up for like two years. So I don't expect it to go up anymore. That's the mindset that was in the 90s. It was like, hey. Yeah, yeah. And then it, you it couldn't went up find from, somebody to buy it. No. Yeah. Then it went up from 1998 basically till yesterday yeah yeah actually yeah 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 till a year ago yeah so i mean to answer your question though like i think that the problem with the banks is that they're using stale data like the loans only have to be reported delinquent so a bank only has to report by law and uh a loan is delinquent if it's the person hasn't made a payment in 90 days Mm -hmm. so and then the cba canadian bankers association publishes that data the next month so it's already four months old um, CMHC publishes that data in their uh, quarterly mortgage industry report uh, the next quarter. So, so yeah, six exactly. months old. Yeah. We always look at the Canadian Bankers Association data, yeah. that spreadsheet, that little chart yeah. or uh, list they put out. But yeah. you're right. It's always like delayed data. Well, yeah. So so I, that's why I, I I track power of sales, because from my perspective, a prudent bank is as soon as the payment is not made, they're going to start power of sale proceedings, at least in this economy, maybe Two years ago, they would say, okay, we'll give them two months and see. But I think right now they would, they would start right away, um, at least with the first letter. So within that three month period, while the data point is boiling for the bank's reporting and CBA report, the property has probably been taken, the owner's been taken to court. They've had some sort of options given to them. They may have just listed it themselves during that period of time because they're like, I got to get out of this situation. At that point, it doesn't even show up as a power sale. Um, but if they don't or choose not to, or they're fighting it or they're absent or whatever, then within that three month period, it's probably showed up as a power of sale. And so the power of sale chart that I have is showing basically a 300 to 400% increase year over year in power of sales. It's still a very small number. It's like less than a hundred listings on the Toronto real estate board. Um, but if you were to imagine that uh, you saw a three or 400% increase mm-hmm. in the delinquency rate, which could happen, it would still be below 1%, by the way. Like it would go from 0.14 to 0.5 or something. Point, yeah. So, but do you think, so you think the, they're not taking the power sale before three months. You think that I don't, I don't actually know this. I'm asking, I think they would. Yeah. I yeah. Think so you want to give it? Cause if you miss I think one, he's it, saying like a prudent lender. So maybe some of the smaller banks, credit unions. Well, you're like, that's where you're seeing it right now. So like I did a, a composition break. You only saw two big, like, so like literally of the power of all the power sales in the last year, only two of them were big six banks. So mm. and that's th- like a thousand something data points. So, um, so the private money starting to yeah. go, the, the smaller lenders. Yeah, yeah it's, it would, you just go down the, the risk chain, right? So your higher risk lenders, individual privates was like 80%. And then okay. now it's starting to creep into the institutional private. So your mix and stuff like that. But usually it's somebody's name or like some random corp name under power of sale. Uh, the other piece, and this is something that, you know, we can rag on realtors a little bit cause we all are realtors. So. We don't, um, we don't use that word. Never say office. that in this yeah, office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys, I, I took my pin off. On yeah, yeah, yeah. I wear it on Thursdays, yeah. but every other day. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the the hard part is like you can't even really count on professionals in our industry to put the square footage of a property in properly, mm-hmm. or the age. Um, so, are they going to list a prop? Uh, you know, the under power of sale, exactly as the lender has 
outlined it, especially with a smaller lender by law. Yeah, they're supposed to, it's supposed to be, but I, I, two deals I was working on in August were soft power of sales and like, and, yeah, and a few, we've seen a few them. come our, yeah. our way as well. And they, and they, it, I would have never known from looking at the listing. So, um, so the, so the data point, and this actually comes from a lender who has been following the chart that I mentioned. He's like, you're probably understating that data point by about 90%. He's like about, yeah, he's like about one in 10 of the properties that we've taken power of sale. Cause they do, it's, it's a lender who does a lot of, um, the workouts for, I don't really know exactly what the pro, pro, uh, process is called, but who would list a lot of the power of sales for other lenders hmm. more in the commercial space. And he was like, very rarely that it actually says in the listing that it's power of sale. So it's not to be alarmist or anything, but no, I, just, I think, I think that's something to real. Yeah, yeah. Well, the data point is, it's is, there. It's moving up. And so um, I, I think that if you were to see the same increase in delinquencies, we would have a, a bit of a problem on yeah. our hands, which I expect. Well, we saw credit card delinquencies already have, have been going, like de- yeah. delinquencies across the board have been going up. So it's worth, you got to watch that. And stuff. I think there was a lot of savings out there through the pandemic with all the CERB stuff. People there, you know, there was some padded bank accounts where people could get by a little longer than maybe usual. Let's face it. Yeah, sure. well, I think look when the, the real pain in all this for people probably started what around this time last year, right before that, it yeah, was kind of, right, yeah. So and then so people just try to hold on for as long as possible. And now they're looking at it like, okay, if this is going to continue for another year, I got to make some decisions now at this point. Mm-hmm. What are you, okay? So then, what are your thoughts on? Because some people are really calling for a bigger real estate collapse in the prices because of some of the you know, some people are so behind on their amortization schedule. They're like, oh my gosh, no one's mm-hmm. going to be able to do this because at the time of renewal of uh, someone's going to owe 80,000 or $160,000 or, you know, whatever it is as missed payments because they have a fixed, very, a fixed variable rate, yeah. you know, kind of like a static, static payment. payment. Variable. Yeah. And, uh, and then their new payments going to be so much higher that Daniel, you're way underestimating this because when these renewals come up, plus they got to make a lump sum payment. To uh, catch up sorry. That's what I was trying to say, right? like 80,000 or 180,000 yeah. lump sum payment to catch up and then a higher payment. We actually, you know, are hearing rumblings of some people who overpurchased or are a little bit nervous of that now, but then Christia Freeland, is that her first name? Christia? Christia. Christia. I can't even say it right. Uh, Freeland. She came out yesterday and had this clip, which just, I've been waiting for because I keep telling Nick, the banks never lose. Right. I'm like, Nick, the, banks. Yeah, the house always wins. House yeah. always wins. And I've been waiting for this clip. And she comes out yesterday and says, well, it's, f- it's fair and equitable for Canadians who are, you know, burdened with their mortgage for the banks to be able to work with them. And our message is to Canadians that your bank should be able to work with you for any undue pain during this time. To me, this is all code for, and maybe it's just a good soundbite, but like, hey, bankers, like when these renewals come up, if someone can't really make it work, you better try to make it work. It, do you think I'm overextending that too far? No. Um, I mean, I think the infrastructure already exists very much, like for the most part. Like you can go to a, your big six lender and within the Bank Act, they're allowed to extend your amortization to 40 years in a case of extreme financial hardship. And they're oh, never... I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's part one that she's mm-hmm. probably alluding to. Mm-hmm. But part two is, okay, well, w- what happens on renewal when they actually look at the numbers and they can, and Scotiabank literally said on their call, and I love this as a Scotiabank shareholder, but you hate it as a member of the cons- you know consumer public is they said, we're going to start exercising our um, customer deselection on renewal. And you can see the shape that that takes in, in, they send you a renewal offer and you're like, I cannot afford this. And you self deselect and say, I'm either going to sell my house or go to a B lender who's basically the same price. Um, and that's how they move risk off of their books. 
We um, saw B lender send out a letter that they're just not renewing. Yeah, there are a lot of soft calls, I guess. That would be like a non-renewal. That's not uncommon. Um, I've seen like a lot, like a lot of people send me stuff like that. A lot of deselection stuff. Uh, I mean, banks are controlling for risk re- retroactively now because it's. Are you getting the text messages with screenshots of the amortizations going through the roof? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, High, it was sixty-two years. Then I saw ninety something. I saw ninety something, yeah. and then I saw blank when the person thought it went over a hundred. Yeah, well, if it just removed it, yeah, it? if it's negatively amortizing, then it's an infinity. Right? <laughs> it's an infinite. There, are, I know, like there are people who. So I've had calls from people who. I, th- I guess I'm part of like uh, their discovery process of like, how do I solve this problem? Uh, and so a lot of people stumble across my content, um, kind of getting a- an idea for what that looks like. And I've had a couple of people in neg- negative AM situations um, who have been triggered. Like, so this would be a static payment variable where they've hit a trigger rate more than one time. And basically um, the, in this situation, they had, they had to, get right with their taxes. So pay their taxes. And then the banks basically said at renewal, you will have to start getting into an amortizing loan. And they don't really quote what that would look like. Mm. Um, do they go beyond 40? Do you think at some point? At renewal? Yeah. Well, the, the thing is like, if you just don't like answer your renewal request, it's going to renew. Well, like really, like, I don't know if you're a borrower, like they're, you know, in, the commercial space this happens pretty often like you know it's like oh that just rolls over mm-hmm. and you because w- it takes you three to six months to get a new loan on some of these more sophisticated projects right and the banks will keep calling you and being like hey you got to do something about this but they can't just stop like you know what i mean they can't just stop mm-hmm. yeah you have the house if right. you're making if you're making your payments you have the property if you're making your payments right and if you renew like that and don't say anything they could trigger you over to a much higher rate, rate yeah in that process yeah but I, I don't think they're in the business and i think that this is what christia freeland is alluding to it's like they're really not in the business of um yeah owning property yeah. yeah but the challenge to me with with what she's saying it, there's a couple of things so Number one, the, you know, she sort of already crossed the line in congratulating the central banks and taking credit for inflation, in saying the Canadians are grateful for, uh, you know, only three point eight percent or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did a victory lap at two two point six, even yeah. though every bank economist was like, "This is the inflation bottom for the short term." Like, you can literally see yeah. based on the base year that it's going to be higher next month and the month after. Like, yeah, the year over don't, year don't celebrate. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was July, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. pure base year. Like, it was just like you can see on the chart it's going to be higher next month. Just like, don't yeah. get, just yeah. relax Calm on down. this one. Don't dance. Um, so there's that, like crossing line on the central bank thing. And a couple of economists really push back on that because one, again, you're starting to violate social contracts a little bit, right? Like, and this is where that faith in institutions comes into play. It's like most, your, your general consumers don't really get that the administrative side should not be interacting with central, central banks. But like th- that's for, for those people who do get it, it's, it is a very important line to not cross. Um, cause they have to be independent. Otherwise the if the government can in, in, um, influence our financial system, now we have problems. Right. And, and I think similarly, um, calling for banks to do things that they, they know what's best. Like really like the, the highest paid executives at the highest paid banks, some of the, like, these are globally sure. significant banks, some of the biggest banks in the world, they know likely what's best. And the reality is they're going to be honorable to one group of people, which is their shareholders, not to the Canadian government, nor should they not to the, not to the Canadian people or their borrowers. And if in that process, they, um, exercise something that I would call economic Darwinism, right. Um, where people who made the wrong decisions 
uh, suffer consequences as a result of that, then that should, that's a, a good thing to happen in a capitalist system. And as soon as you, as soon as you use the force of government to influence that, it really starts to erode, like you start, you start socializing things. It's not to say like scary, like socialism, Marxism, like it's not even an, a statement about anti anything. It's just that there are literal socializations that can happen as a result of it. Like here, here's a really easy example of how affordable housing is socialized by um, investors or speculators who are willing to lose money on pre-constructions. Uh, just for like, cause it, when I, when you use the word socialism, people can kind of get like scared about it. But if people weren't willing to buy pre-construction houses for, uh, and, and be cash flow negative, then all of these guys on King street West who were renting these like ball and condos couldn't afford to rent them at that price or because they couldn't afford to own it. That their landlord is losing money so that they can. So, so that's housing that's being delivered to the, mm. to the market that's, that's more affordably. affordable housing solution, <laughs> but, that, but that's, but that's socializing a loss, right? It's socializing a loss on a speculator and it's maybe, maybe pushing it down the road because they're relying on capital appreciation to recover that loss. But that is a socialization. This would be the same thing where you're taking, you're basically taking either a shareholder capital or B um, existing bank capital or C. And this is where it gets really hairy is um, tax, uh, taxpayer insured mortgages, which I'll touch on another thing that kind of scared me from the bank of Canada. But um, if any of those mechanisms starts paying for somebody else's mistakes, that's a problem. That's a socialization of uh, like people have to be accountable to their own mistakes. I admire where you're going with this because you're basically saying the banks won't allow people to continue to hold these mortgages if the bank really made a decision that was incorrect based on the facts today and they have to call the mortgage due and let the chips fall where they may. But what I think, I, I think you, I admire the fact that you believe in a system that is a capitalist system that we're still operating in. I think we've crossed the Rubicon on this. I agree with you, but like, and, and so you're hopeful. I, I just think it's worth noting that a statement like that, like that it indicates that that's what can mm -hmm. take place. And that right now that you break it, it down like that you, with the fact that you break it down the way you just did, it's really offside for her to say what she said. It, it's it's just not it's not the system that mm -hmm. like it's just an erosion of of the system that yeah. we have yeah. right like it's yeah. just it's just like to me that's just another point at which it's like okay things are not the way that yeah. they were but hasn't it eroded already yeah for it sure. has yeah no but but if, like even if you go back to COVID and I know it was unique circumstances you know but but still they came out and they went to the banks and they that's when they started buying all those uh, mortgage secured the mortgages off their books and they told them to keep lending right to keep the economy going so they did that mm -hmm. like years ago they that was kind of like in the open I don't know if she stood up in parliament and and made the comment it looks like she's talking to a reporter or something oh okay yeah. but but it's you know like it's 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 gone. I don't I don't think we go back to the way it was. I would agree with that. Like, and even to make it a nonpartisan issue, like it's the same thing when Pierre Polly uh, ever says that he's going to fire Tiff Macklem because he wasn't happy with what he did. Yeah, like, yeah. agree. Can't you just, agree. Like, neither party They're all the, same. the line. Agreed. Yeah. And the same thing. Like Jugmeet Singh says the same things that central banks are stealing money from people, yeah. and you know, and they, they're to blame. It's like. Every, every single we, they've just all of them have completely broken the fact that there is and always has been a line between those two parties and and so now we are in a different paradigm of politics which is to me 
like it's a reflection of the fact that the that that line is is gone. The way you're articulating it that way, I like. Yeah, because it really brings home the loss of faith in the institutions that is starting to happen, and it's when the government crosses paths with the private institutions the way they are. But this is to- this is part of just exactly what happens when, to your point, and I don't want to give you credit, but it's, it's, you know if you look at other areas when the currency goes to shit. Okay. Mm-hmm. This, this is like when they came out in September and started talking about price controls of the the, the growth. Grocery and it wasn't really price controls, but like, hey, we're going to make sure they lower prices, which is kind of like heading in that direction is what mm-hmm. they're trying to do. And, and Jagmeet was, I think he wanted it already or whatever. It seems just like we're taking maybe not full steps, but we're taking baby steps mm-hmm. into that direction, the same path that other countries have gone down when they go through this thing. And it's, it, yeah, it's, it's wrong. And but it, it doesn't seem like anyone's going to change it. And I, I agree with what you're saying. This isn't a, it's not a political statement. This is it, it, it's a part. Maybe there's issue. some goodness if the banks lay down the law and just do what they should do, which I don't think they'll be. Well, able the bank, to. the government will make them some promises like they did last time. Because yeah. to your point, they, they yeah. care about their shareholders, right? Yeah. So, but if the government comes and is like, hey, look, we're going to make you whole or you'll get this and they're backdoor, back channeling something, some promises to them and they're like, okay, we can make this this in exchange for this. And that's why I think that they're able to do something and still protect their sh- shareholders. I'm not saying it's right. I just think that's what I expect to kind of happen. Mm-hmm. You were going to comment on insured mortgages or something that scared you there. What, what was that? Oh, yeah. So, um the Bank of Canada, I don't know if you guys saw this, they they put out an economic paper on um, the impacts of a debt jubilee in Canada. Oh, we did see that. Yeah. That was that was recently. Yeah. That was like yeah. a few weeks ago, yeah, right? A couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For forgiving yeah, yeah forgiving yeah. debt and how and they it used stim- Yeah, so they used greater than ninety five percent loan to value mortgages to basically it was like it, it, it was weird the way that it like the it's as if like a 95% LTV basically gets reset to a 95% LTV in a situation of a, of loss. So, and that was the only like group that they studied, but it was just still like, from my perspective, just an interesting thing. I guess they do have to publish all economic papers that they're working on and stuff like that or academic papers. But, but the fact like, that you're just having to study this. Yeah. Is, yeah it's, is, I don't know. It's there, kind of a weird one. There, that was a weird one. There's one, uh, you weren't around when I read this out. I, Nick, I wanted to run this by um, Daniel. The Federal Reserve put this something similar out. Oh, the, you know, was the IMF statement? Was the Federal Reserve that? Oh, yeah, the Federal Reserve paper about... Um, Just the fiscal dominance thing. Yeah, this, Backwardation. Yeah, yeah this, this paper. So um, at the presentation um, on Saturday, I shared this. It came out uh, fourth quarter 2023. Just came out. St. Louis Federal Reserve. Um, fiscal dominance and the return of zero interest bank reserve requirements, which, you know, whatever they named it, this thing, but on the title, I'm just going to read it out to you. It says as a matter of arithmetic. So they're basically saying as a matter of fact, like math. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, a matter of arithmetic, the trends of the U S government debt will eventually result in an outrageously high government debt to GDP. But when exactly will the U S hit the constraint of infeasibility? Right. So the, so the paper is basically saying yeah. like the math doesn't look good. Yeah. When exactly does shit hit the fan? That's how I'm interpreting that. Um, and how exactly will policy adjust to that? And then it says this article considers fiscal dominance, which is the possibility that accumulating government debt and deficits can produce increases in inflation that dominate central bank inter- intentions to keep inflation low. So just to repeat, it produces, sorry, it increases in inflation that dominate central bank intentions to keep inflation low. So it's kind of saying high think, rates and high debt yeah. lead to high rates and more high debt. I think that like Canada is a poster child for that, right? Like fuel costs are one of the biggest drivers of inflation yeah. and, and the biggest trickle through. And yet we're stacking it with taxes that are 
further inflationary. Like it, the fiscal and monetary policy have been at war for several years, right? especially in Canada. Listen to the last line of the report. Ultimately, it seems like the, likely that the U.S. will either have to decide to rein in entitlements. So they have to decide yeah. to cut their spending to people they've promised to spend mm-hmm. on whatever they're spending. So not going to happen. Or risk a future of significantly higher inflation and financial backwardness. Right. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. I think we're on a, li- a leaning towards the higher inflation and fi- whatever financial backwardness. Yeah, you're a smart guy. What's financial, financial backwardness? backwardness just means to me that, that they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, or they're, they're, they will always, like, I, I think they're already in an era of financial backwardness. There's deficit, right? So like, it's just that they're, they're, they're spending and there's literally quite, quite literally no way that they can possibly pay. And I think that all sovereign debts are like this. And it's almost like from my perspective, you have like all of these countries who are basically just competing to, to see who can grow their economy to be strong enough that nobody's going to come knocking on the door one day and be like, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, where's the money, right? Like all, all of the money that Canada and the U S and everybody is spending, it's never going to be paid back. Like it's not even really money. Like, you know what I mean? Do you ever go to the, there's a website, the international Institute of finance, and they publish reports, I guess, just to banks and stuff. So I put in Rockstar Real Estate. I tried to make an account, yeah. like Rockstar Real Estate. I'm like, hey, we, we do research reports because they publish the global debt to GDP numbers. You've probably seen one mm-hmm. of their charts mm-hmm. and they denied me. Like I got, you know, sorry. Like, I guess, you know, we, right. we're not allowed in yeah. into the club there. But every once in a while it leaks out one of their graphs. If you just Google like, you know, IIIF. Um, you know, debt charts and it's like $405 trillion or like a, it's, it's basically a four to one ratio debt to GDP, but it's closing in on or just crossed $400 trillion of global debt. Yeah. The debt to GDP globally is four to one. So then sometimes I think you kind of comment on this that kind of stunned me. And I wish I remember what you said. We were at the Bitcoin conference in uh, the Canadian one. And we were on that panel and we were talking about this a little bit and and Greg Foss said something and you kind of stunned him there for a second. I forget what the topic was. He was asking you something and you shot something back at him and I forget what it was, but I think it was on this topic. But uh, the basically, if it's four to one ratio and interest rates, if you just kind of generalize them at 5% and the four grows at 5%, well, the GDP has to grow like four times more right? to even just keep that ratio at all in any semblance of normal growth. Yeah. Otherwise the, the debt just pulls away too much faster, which means we need like 20% inflation. I'm, I'm grossly generalizing here, yeah. but we need high amounts of, of inflation going forward. If you agree with that, which I don't even know if you do, where do real estate prices in Canada then head? Like, are we really, do, do you think we do get a full year of flatness ahead? Yeah, I think that there's a like there's you have to respect the lag, right? So, mm-hmm. like yeah, so right. nothing's instant. Well, and it's it's also just like what what is the most powerful force right now? And given that households are the marginal buyer of households, so what are, what are the, what is the most dominant force in the lives of households right now? It is inflation that causes them to take money and put it into the economy. That means that they don't have money to go and jump into bidding wars or buy investment properties, and it's capital costs that are three times higher than they were when everybody bought committed to their existing mortgage mm-hmm. term, et cetera, until everybody in the present day economy or sorry. Yeah. So you have like a lot of borrowers who are existing in an economy from three years ago because they have mortgage rates from three years ago until everyone is in present day economy with present day rates. You never really get to the point where you yeah, can actually start rebuilding. That. And no. so, yeah, that, that would be my perspective. Um, and I think that, that it's not a long process, but it's still a process. Like 
everyone's like, oh, the market's going to crash. It's like the market already crashed. Like we literally saw house prices fall. The biggest drop in, in on record in Canadian house prices happened from Q1 2022 to Q1 2023. Never been bigger. It was bigger than the drop in 89. And you're actually seeing it like almost with a scary correlation to 89 chart, right? And, and so many different data points line up. Um, you saw like a 20% drop. And then in 89, prices ran up again. Mm. And they just did the same thing in Q1 of this year. Right, Q1, Q2, we saw prices go up until May. Saw strongest spring market on record. Mm-hmm. Like literally from January to May, highest growth in house prices that we've ever seen. And then from May till August, and that's just seasonality, a lot of it, so prices fell through the summer. The question becomes now we're in a fall market. They jumped up into, um, into September uh, marginally, but they went up on a month over month basis what happens for the next two seasonal cycles, your fall market and your spring market. Um, price was fine, but volume is what's killing everybody. Like we saw the slowest September. Did you see the volume chart in 1990 on Trev? Yeah. It goes, it goes, it's 89's high, yeah. 90's low, and then like 91, it's almost like a right back yeah. to where. Yeah, well it will like, and, and so this this is what will likely happen. Like just, and this is just how the economy seems to work is, the ability for demand to exist is, isn't just a function of house prices, right? It's a function of house prices, incomes and interest rates. That's how, that's the equation of affordability. And so in order to get back to pre COVID affordability, we need house prices to go down like 35% or you need incomes to raise like 50% or you need interest rates to go down 350 basis points. Mm-hmm. Some combination of that will ha- take place over the next several years. And when we have a market that is affordable, then people will buy houses because they can afford to. Right now, 10% of the population can afford to buy a house, right? So that's how your market shrinks. Do you think Daniel breaks correction? it out so nicely like yeah. he just did. It just seems so normal where I'll just look at stats like that and just get pissed off, go like, this is fucking bullshit. Sorry, I'm swearing. Mm-hmm. But no, totally. the way you lay it out is really just nicely laid out. Like, yeah, yeah. that is like the facts. That's what Do you, do you think the price correction was muted because it was at that peak for such a short period because from November until February for me, if, in my head it's November, November last year, no, November 21 to okay. 22. That's when things just like, yeah. they just went balls. Like yeah. they just went straight yep. up. So because that peak, and then even in like, remember you were, you were saying from December to January, someone was commenting, Hey, what did the prices go up 30%? It did feel like they were almost 20% month over month. I think they did. So the peak was so short yeah. that, not there weren't as many transactions that were done at that peak. Like if it was a longer run up, mm-hmm. then more transactions. So you're saying would be done that, that we're peak. we're done? Like yeah, we're no, not. I'm not we, saying we that we're done. Measure from that moment. There's fewer victims. That's yeah. yeah. So I think the overall impact is yeah. less the headlines than, than look it was good. the last time. Even though the price that's the fair. price fluctuation is huge, I, yeah. I think just because of the shorter time span of mm-hmm. prices at that level. That's that's the only thing. I don't know. It's just my theory that I kind of feel like that has something to do with it. Yeah, I would agree. I think like even 2017 had a far more severe impact because you saw like it was it was running up for a longer period of time and then the drop was like the drop in certain markets in 2017 was more substantial than i think like well here like oakville would have been it was like a 30 percent drop um, i felt Aurora so brief was, maybe we were just so it was busy brief. doing what we were doing yeah. that like it, it happened definitely and it just kind of we just seemed to move well, on it was the higher priced homes at that time when we were still we yeah we do and so it does much in the starter the home category yeah. that the starter home category that just didn't get hit the same yeah. way right so no, yeah with the, the investors we work with we're based out of oakville but we're like doing most of our stuff in st Catharines and welland hamilton, and harrington yeah. london Bar- yeah, yeah barry aurelia so yeah. we're not actually super active but the five five and a half million dollar oakville home for sure 
time that yep. went down yep. to four million. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and those can can really skew the average, right? If it's like if it's two million plus volume that's getting smoked, then that's going to skew. Yeah. Like, but but the price floor was pretty insulated in 2017. Yeah, it seemed that way. Nick, do you have to bowl? Yeah, I got yeah to okay. Play I, uh, we didn't talk yet. I just wanted your thoughts on, uh, you're, you're good for a little bit? Yeah. More, uh, population growth. When I say sure. that in Canada, what, what comes to mind? Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things. And, and actually, I was going to mention that on 89 as well. So we can we can use that. So Because I think that looking at 89 and the, the economics of the 90s recession, because I do think Canada could see as severe of a recession as we saw in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was brutal. Yeah, I, don't, I, I was born in 91, so oh, <laughs> I don't know, shit. but yeah. Well, all we were all, all my buddies, so I was like 17, all my buddies we were all working construction, making a killing. Yeah. We didn't know we had to like keep money aside for taxes. Right. <laughs> so we just like, yeah, we'd just go to the bars yeah. and like yeah. buy rounds of drinks. And the next summer, I just remember the next summer, nobody was working. Yeah, I was a teller, I had a few hours at CIBC. Nice. I was a teller at CIBC trying to like sell visa cards or whatever we were trying yeah. to pimp out at the branch that point um but nobody was working it was brutal yeah that was a, that was a tough run yeah yeah i heard um but yeah you were yeah I was you born. were one but so sorry go on yeah so 89 was the last time we saw a population growth peak in canada mm-hmm. until last year hmm. it was Interesting. one point i haven't looked at it like that yeah 1.81 percent um year over year population growth in, in 1989 um and then Last year we broke it in Q1 at 1.84 percent first time, and then now we're at like two and a half, three percent, which is crazy. But um, the important part to look at is what happens. What are the economic effects on population growth? Because everybody's like, population growth is the bull case in Canadian real estate, mm-hmm. which I partially agree with. We can get into that, but um, in '89, immigration continued mm-hmm. um, as other economies around the world were kind of melting down. Um, people were compelled to move here. So let's call it a flight to quality. Um, but non-permanent residents, which is the big piece of Canadian population growth right the now. The huge yeah. piece. Yeah. yeah, and it fell off a cliff. And so, and those are like, so statistically, I mean, non-permanent residents are not going to buy a house, right? They're going to rent. Mm-hmm. So that's really what's putting a lot of upward pressure on your rents, making student rentals, compelling investments, mm-hmm. right? It's flooding a lot of these college towns. Um, if that drops off because... Um, you know, you're hearing a lot of international students saying that the, the, it's, sure. it's been a, a shame. Even politically, I think they want to dial it back a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and even like even politically, like that's just as much a reflection of the the Ontario like politics college system as it is of the federal system. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I guess the point is, I think that it would be um, reasonable to expect that you see a big drop in non permanent residents, um, and that million people per year isn't and it's not even to say whether or not it's sustainable for the economy politically whatever it's just like it economically probably will not continue like i don't i can't see like i see a big portion of those people aren't going to move here if they're not graduating into jobs they're paying too much for a degree that is nobody's going to hire them for now we're seeing a lot of these students actually coming here thinking that they're going to get pr when they graduate Mm -hmm. um, but not actually because they are going to some of these institutions that are doing things like increasing their international student enrollment by 6,000%, their CRS score ends up not being high enough. So which is the score that would allow them to get into the PR system. And CRS scores are so high because Canada is actually good at attracting top global talent. And so it's competitive for, for people to get in. And so it's actually not opening the door for a lot of those individuals. So if you start seeing that idea spread where more and more people choose not to come here on a non-permanent basis and there are no job vacancies for them to fill anymore, et cetera, et cetera. And they all go home. You could see it be like 
I, for people who are, I, I don't think that. Uh, okay, but those you were saying those ones are likely not going to buy. Okay, but they put demand on rent. So we remove a chunk of population that way. And I agree. I yeah. think it's going to come down. Yeah. So then keep going. What's your thought? I'm interested in this. So your thought process is population number changes. A big part of that change will be non-permanent residents. Yeah. So a lot of rental demand kind of disappears. Definitely in the student rental community, perhaps. Yep. And elsewhere. Yeah. And then what? What else with the population? I think that the the remaining pieces, and you can see what's happening in the U.S. right now. And I think that you know, if you study economic cycles of Western countries, um, we are 200 years ahead of, or sorry, behind where you know Germany or France would be. And so, 200 years ago, before airplanes existed and um, people could travel from continent to continent easily, um, a lot of people from all over the world wanted to move to Europe as an example. And so what happened? You saw a homeownership decline because those were t- mm. homeownership was a big tenant of um, European life at that point. Hmm. Um, was it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Like during that yeah, period. It would time, make sense. I've never really thing, studied right? it. the estate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all that yeah. stuff. Lawns yeah. Yeah. were yeah. invented. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, but it was also still a very uh, multi-generational thing, like fam- but your family had a house, right? Mm-hmm. And then it would be passed down generation to generation. But what you started to see was homeownership would decline. Um, and then um, the rental, you'd see a huge increase in rental tenure, but and you would see a, an increase in the number of people per household. And you look at the US and Canada, um, we have the two two of the three yeah. highest I agree with uh, where square footage yeah. per capita yeah. in the world. Um, and so what happened and the U S just for the first time since, uh, they were founded like 1700s, just saw an increase in their number of people per house. Did they? Yeah. For the first time. So have we in Canada? No, it's tough to tough say. To, like I think our data is kind of shitty. Is it not? It, it has our to data? be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, on average we haven't, um, but the challenge with Canada is you're seeing it. That, so the fastest growing household size is one in Canada. So I guess there's a lot of people living in on in condos on their mm-hmm. own or whatever. But then that the fastest growing, um, the type of living arrangement is roommates. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing one or five or four or whatever it is. So I would assume that maybe, maybe if it didn't show yeah. up in this census data, it's either being misreported or, uh, just is too early, but you know, you drive through any new subdivision of McMansions right now, you're seeing a lot of DIY density. Basically a lot of those are four adults living in a house. You see four cars in the driveway, right? Um, or the whole streets are littered with cars being parked. Um, all of these new four bedroom McMansions, they're built to be this, like they all have en suites. They all have their own electrical circuit, Mm -hmm. right? They all have walk-in closets. Mm -hmm. They're all massive bedrooms. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I I really think this is almost like built like purpose built, um, like, and, and it's just becoming this density arrangement. And a lot of it is, um, part and parcel with play every, everywhere outside of the U S and Canada has had roommate living arrangements for young professionals, um, like dorm style living, um, multifamily or multi-generational living. Um, and we're just at the point in our cycle where the average household size is going to start increasing. And, and you're seeing it in the policy side, fourplex, everything in Toronto, triplex, everything in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Sixplexes in Toronto, I think, coming this year. Well, yeah, and you've got Justin Trudeau going around to basically governments now. Like, it literally, it was like housing isn't a primary re- <laughs> federal responsibility. Then he checks the polls, and it's like, oh, now it's the responsibility. Now he won't stop talking. Yeah, yeah, and so, but he's going around and basically like making municipalities remove their exclusionary zoning and then giving them funding if they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
we're entering it and this is so a, it's a new era from my perspective this is like the this could be like a renaissance period for investors who want to create housing i, I didn't know you were going to just say yeah. that this is what i talk to my son about all the time yeah i'm like the ability for an investor to get an infill project somewhere in toronto and build a beautiful triplex maybe even a semi three units on each side properly yeah. done separate entrances do you know craig race yeah an art yeah. you know craig yeah you see the stuff that he does yeah Beautiful, with a nice laneway house in the back. Mm. That that satisfies a need for the investor who maybe wants to produce income or just flip it over and sell it to some other investor who wants to buy it. Right. And it's beautiful housing. Yeah. And it's filling a need in the community. And I think it acts as a densifier in communities where we don't need more sprawl. Yeah. So you're right. I think this could be a renaissance in a good way. Well, it's a perfect storm too. Like you're seeing a decrease in pre-construction. So the investors that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago who are lining up to buy uh, cash negative condos mm -hmm. so they can rent them out to, you know, people in Toronto are, are gone. Like we've seen pre-construction sales are well below the long-term average and they're down like substantially depending on the month on a year over year basis. And you're tying that to this trend you're just talking about or just Yeah, rates? because well, the demand hasn't gone anywhere. The demand is increasing. Like there's still more people than households, right? There's still more people. It's an increasing number. Like um, Fraser Institute just came out with like this, this report that shows on a provincial basis, the number of people moving to the province uh, divided by the number of housing completions. Okay. And it's like national average, is like 4.7. Look at like uh, New Brunswick's like 11 people per new housing unit, right? So there's too many people or there's not enough houses for the people. Let's call it that way. I don't want to say there's too many people, not enough houses. So, and, and now that, that new, like, let's say the Canadian real estate market is and will pr continue to be in a state of excess demand as a result of population growth, which is probably a predictable trend. Excess demand should, and, has in the past created new housing supply either either one of two things can happen in canadian or, or in, in any excess demand scenario either price goes up or supply goes up to meet demand neither of those are happening right now supply is going down because uh new constructions are uh, are not being bought by these investors and prices are going down and so what's going to happen well the demand's now spilling over and it's going to tertiary markets it's going to barry or it's going to uh, alberta alberta and nova scotia saw like record international or sorry interprovincial migration um and so what i think happens is you take the that demand needs to be backfilled by somebody it's not being backfilled by the high-rise space um and it's and so so what's left to do and what's the most agile supply is probably an existing house that you cut up into two units mm -hmm. right and that's and that's funny because we talk about this all the time but in a little bit different way i like the way you articulated that right now because when we started buying rental properties out in hamilton we were, grew up in mississauga mm -hmm. uh, started buying in hamilton and we would rent out a whole house three bedroom driveway up the side no garage that house we'd rent out between 1250 bucks 14 1400 dollars the, the whole house mm -hmm. now that house in hamilton is divided into a proper duplex, legal duplex, top floor 2,400, bottom floor 18 to 2,000. So per square foot, people are paying more, you know, you're just paying more to get less. Yeah. And I think that trend, we started seeing it like eight, nine years ago begin. Yeah. And it was kind of informal, like, oh my gosh, like we can just kind of put this into a duplex and rent this out and there's demand for that. And I think what you're saying is that's just going to spread through the whole country and definitely in the GTA. Yeah, like it's, that's, I, I would say that probably within, like by the time my kids are my age, mm -hmm. almost everybody will be living in that type of arrangement. 
Like and you're right. It's what my cousin, we have cousins in Europe and people live multi-generation, the same family. Often the mortgage is paid off mortgage. They don't have, they didn't really have mortgages. We're talking some villages in the middle of, Korea. Right, right. but just like, there's no debt on the property. Yeah. Family owns it. They add additions to the house, build yeah. another story. Yeah. And you can see that coming to Canada. So then what do you think you like that type of, do you have any, is it, is it good or bad to your children or it just is what it is? You know what? I don't really like necessarily have a commentary on it, but I think that if we just like examine the facts, um, like I personally like living in a relatively rural area. Um, and, and as much as I hate sprawl and I think that commuting is, you know, with gas powered vehicles into an urban yeah. core is silly and bad for the environment. It's just like, that's the environment that I'm comfortable in. And so I try to leave as, as infrequently as possible, but thanks for coming out to Oakville. We, we <laughs> my pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I took the small car today. So, <laughs> um, but I, I think that, um, there's this whole idea. Every time I post something about like housing, uh, increase in, um, in uh, institutional ownership or investor ownership of real estate, decrease in home ownership. People are always, mm-hmm. always on TikTok comments, Twitter, whatever. Uh, you'll own nothing and be happy, right? The World Economic yeah. Forum thing. The reset. Yeah, whatever. Like, so I, I, I get like, I, I, when, it, when it comes to conspiracy theories, I, I prescribe to um, Alan Moore's, um, he's the, the author of uh, The Watchmen, oh, the okay. graphic novel. Okay brilliant guy. But anyway, he has this quote, it's a long quote, but it's like, you know, people want to believe in conspiracy theories because it's comforting to believe that somebody's in control, but the reality is the world is rudderless. And, um, I think that as much as, you know, we want to think that Christian Freeland and Klaus Schwab and yeah. whatever are yeah, like, I'm with you. they're like yeah. trying to make this happen. It's, it's probably also happening because of fundamental economic forces like, um, Adam Smith in the wealth of nations talked about this concept, um, specialization and division of labor, mm-hmm. right? Like you're really good at something and you ought to do that thing. Um, and a lot of Canadians are good at a lot of things and owning houses is not one of them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we should maybe let people who are experts at owning houses specialize in owning houses so that, that person could go and telecommute into their whatever work at mm-hmm. a tech company mm-hmm. or, you know, like build widgets or whatever they do that isn't, you know, owning a 150 year old, super depreciated asset with, you know, 50 grand a year of CapEx of deferred maintenance and CapEx required. Mm-hmm. Um, you should let a landlord mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, um, do that literally because it's an economically more efficient thing to do. Uh, and so a lot of like, you know, this would have all the question is like, does this evolve into a more modernized feudal mm-hmm. system? The answer is probably yes. But the, my, my question to people who are, you know, complaining about that or saying that it's like a bad or sinister force is like, is it really necessarily wrong that that's the case? Like, do you want to be mowing your lawn? Do you, do you enjoy mowing your lawn and changing your light bulbs? Like one of my buddies is an electrician. He says like the biggest call that he gets in the city is a light bulb. Up. Yeah. And people are like, Oh, my light's not working. It's like, Oh, like change the light bulb. And they literally don't know how to like take the boob off of the thing <laughs> and put, you know what I mean? And he gets like 350 bucks to do that. It's like, that's a person who shouldn't be a homeowner really. Right. <laughs> you don't have to fight the, the weft to do like to, to say that like, oh my God. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 We've gotten yeah. so many of the same calls. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I guess it's a system of incentives and that maybe I'm, I'm saying it a little differently than the way you just laid it out. You're kind of talking about just specialization and I'm saying the system, maybe just a system of incentive, it kind of drives this because the only thing that 
maybe would make me not enjoy that because I agree. I think kind of we're headed there, and I think yeah. it's kind of natural. Canada was maybe the gra- the great last hope to be able to buy your family estate or place, and we have that in our DNA here for the last 25, 35 years. So it might take a generation to shake that. Maybe that won't be a thing in Canada, and people won't be so you know up in arms when they can't buy a property when they come here or right. you know have kids here. So maybe the narrative changes around that because that has been a thing for Canada. You can come here and buy a house, but you can do that in other places way better. Like. Um so like when I'm presenting this data at like a conference or something, I, I have a slide that where I show like a couple of flags and I ask the audience, like, do you think that Canada wants to be more like Switzerland or Romania as an example? Mm-hmm. And then well, there's a couple of other ones. I, and I don't know what the number would be like for a place like Croatia as an example, but Romania as an example has a homeownership rate of like 95% and Switzerland has a homeownership rate in the fifties. And it's like, I think that Canada wants to be more like Switzerland mm-hmm. than Romania. Mm-hmm. I think most Canadians would agree with that. These are just consequences of wanting to be super first world, right? Like if you want to, if that's what yeah, you want, I like the you want way you're breaking sell, it out. If you want to sell people the middle class, yeah. if you want everybody yeah. to be driving around in a lease BMW and you know what I mean? Like living in a, a McMansion in the suburbs, like <laughs> that is the consequence of yeah. it. I guess where I get personally frustrated is that owning a, a hard asset like real estate has been one of the only ways for a middle-class Canadian to keep up with the devaluation of the dollar that we were talking about, debasement M2. It's like, oh man, this is the only piggy bank that people generally have. Even if someone was fortunate enough to be able to start a small business, they typically don't own the real estate that the business was in. At the end of their lives, they sell the real estate. I've seen this now a few times. There's nothing really of value in the business unless there was like lots of machinery or some really super valuable right. intellectual property. Right. So the real estate in and of itself was really the only thing. So in the in a family home, that's often the only thing that people then can refinance to fund their kind of retirement years. So then I wonder, you know, where where we go when people may not even have that. I personally think it's in a good direction because I think that the reason that um, things are the way that you described is because the business of owning a house is a very simple business that most people understand or was, and now it's becoming less and less of that. Like as an example, like I own a galvanized steel dump trailer that makes me far more money than any of my investment properties mm-hmm. on a cash on cash basis. It you paid do for, for real? Yeah, yeah I actually mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Awesome. Pay, rent it out. Pay, I paid, it paid for itself within a year. Um, and it's cash in a lot of cases. Um, is it one of those nice ones, like really shiny? Yeah, ga- no, well, it's not shiny because it's galvanized. Yeah, right? okay, like, so, got Yeah, you know, but galvanized, galvanized can be know. nice and clean. And, yeah, I guess yeah. mine's not clean. Oh, Shouldn't okay, be, right? Okay, so, but, um, it's working. But, but the, the, the point is, you know, that's a little bit, it's, it's not really that complicated of a business, but it's marginally more complicated for the average mm, person because sure. most people haven't used a dump trailer mm. before or, or a small excavator, a tractor, whatever you're renting out, you know, a sea um, which you could do. Like, mm, you know, sure. you, you yep. buy a hard asset yep. that is inflation yep. hedged um, that you could rent out. Most people have lived in a house. And so it's, you know, the, the inputs and outputs are, are more understandable for most people. The other piece, and this is really from my perspective, why I think Canadians and well, North Americans in general are obsessed with um, the home ownership piece is like it's generally become a Ponzi scheme mm-hmm. and um, Canadians are horrible at saving money. And um, if you take general investment advice, go listen to like Dave Ramsey or like, I don't know, the most like basic, sure. anyway, yeah. you yeah. know, save money, put it in a compounding asset, you know, do that for 40 years and you'll... Uh, you'll have wealth. Most Canadians can't do that. And so a house serves that goal for them because it forces them to make a mortgage payment and it is mm-hmm. a compounding, is an asset that compounds and, and it, again, is hedged against inflation. And so um, it, it 
forces them to follow the investment advice. So, so taking all of those things that I just mentioned, my thought would be that by taking the capital away from a house so that people can have their home owned by somebody else, rent it, whatever, and it's just a cost, um, it frees up that capital to put it into something else. And I look at some of these other places, like think about like some of the smartest people that I know and the wealthiest people that I know, the financially smartest people that I know, investment bankers, et cetera, they all rent, they all rent their houses. None of them own a house because they, they understand that it's, uh, you pay sure. for a place to live. And it's not to say, it's not some statement about whether or not it's right or wrong, but you can have economies that do the same thing. So Switzerland, as an example, pretty high functioning financial mm-hmm. economy. Um, all of my friends, I'm, I'm um, a Swiss citizen. I went there to do military conscription. All of my friends who I met in the army there, um, none of them are born in Switzerland. No, no. Mm. but they have a, a similar, most EU countries, like mm. a repatriation thing for their um, citizenship. So, um, and I, and I just wasn't doing anything. So I wanted to, to go to the army there for shit. Yeah, it was fun. Sounds great. Yeah, it was awesome. But, but so a lot of these guys and you know, a good example, um, a lot of them are, are running startups in, uh, in the Bitcoin space, mm-hmm. as an example, investing in things that they're passionate about rather than just a house in Canada. It's this huge draw on capital that every, like 70% of the household network is tied that. up in the primary residence. Like it's just I'm, such I, a gross really underutilization like of capital. Yeah. So you just think people are should put money into things that they actually give a shit about. Can they, are they capable? They can't be, well, what are they going to do with the because idle your cash? buddies who are hedge funds? Like they get what outpaces. They might not talk in like, Hey, I'm doing this because I'm outpacing right. M2 in debasement. They just know that this is a high growth thing and they're yeah. able to get financially ahead much faster than by just renting yeah. and deploying any capital they have in these yeah. other high growth areas. And most people, I guess if, yeah, I guess if there was less, it's kind of like chicken and egg. Yeah. Cause if, if, if there was less debasement of the currency, you could almost just save and just get ahead. Right. You know, uh, you, I don't know if, I don't think we just, did we just talk about it earlier? I've already forgotten about the S and P 500 over 20 years of no. 4% gain. When you divide it by M2 S and P 500 divided by like USM two, it's up 4% over the last 20 years. Right. So you really have to invest in like high tech or whatever your hedge fund guys are yeah. investing in guys and girls. Um, so that's, I guess, just what makes me question, like, could people actually do it? Or do we need a whole thing where you mentioned Bitcoin? Do we need a change in what people perceive as an area to save money? And like, just don't save it in the Canadian dollar, US right. dollar. Find something that you can save in that really goes up in purchasing power versus the yeah. things around you. Could it be as simple as that? Yeah, I think you do, you don't know until people have the money. And and because of the way that Canadian real estate or the Canadian economy has been, it's like, we've just been accumulating household debt for so long that like nobody really knows the answer because like we haven't basically since the last housing correction, mm-hmm. like since the nineties, mm-hmm. um, debt to disposable income has just been growing. And so we don't like, I don't know what Canadians will do when they have savings cause they don't have savings. Right. Like, mm-hmm. but it'll probably do what they did during COVID and buy jet skis and boats <laughs> and cottages. And so may, maybe it is a bad thing, but, but to be honest, like that's actually, those, those are more, more productive assets. Like houses aren't productive assets. And this is like why, you know, China doesn't have a huge issue with their housing. It's weird that you're in real estate down. listening to you speak. Yeah. I fair. like it. I like, yeah. but, but I like, like farmland, right. <laughs> where it produces something. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, there is a utility to it, but it shouldn't be, it's become monetized for right. all the reasons that you, we've been talking about and it really shouldn't have. Yeah. 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 I think that, you know, like, it, it, and it, it's based on like, it's just, it, it's become more monetized or like almost financialized or commoditized where it's a, a thing that's traded, um, based on like going up and down in value, uh, because of, because it's become a scarce asset 
Whereas like in a lot of economies that function more properly, it's not as scarce, right? You don't have too many people for two little houses or you don't have a housing you, scarcity. I, I really, I love your line of thinking. You've put a lot of thought into different things that really most people aren't thinking about. If you were put in charge, you were the minister of finance here in this country, or you were in charge of the whole country, what were some things that you would put in place along these lines of housing and population, um, spending, just what comes to mind when I say that? I would prioritize, um, I would prioritize people who like, uh, I, I think population growth, I, I don't think you can, like, I actually think that the fundamental of that is to offset an aging population. And that is a problem that everywhere in the world's facing. And we're doing a pretty damn good job at it. The problem is that, uh, these people are net consumers of the heart of the biggest asset that, or the, the most important asset. Like it's really a, literally a human necessity shelter. Um, they're net consumers and they're not net creators of it. And so I would, I would, until we've solved the problem, I would make the majority of people migrating to this country, net creators of housing. So mm, people are in skilled trades yeah, yeah, okay. and I would continue training the existing population to do the same thing. Um, that would be my priority. And I think that the problem would be solved very quickly. Uh, if that was the case, if everybody was, you know, a framer or a skilled trade or Agreed. whatever it is, I don't right? think it would like, take too long. Well, Agreed. it's not like it's, it's not a super complex, no. um, like regulatory system. Like it's not like doctors where you have like 30,000 doctors in Canada that can't practice medicine. It's like somebody comes here for like most trades, like you walk onto a job site, like you, you can tell pretty quickly whether or not somebody can do the job. Like it's not like you're handing them a scalpel and being like, Hey, like nobody dies yeah. in this situation yeah. either. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean that, that would probably be, I think that there's not really much more that needs to change from, well, like I think then you need to allow these people to build houses. So make building permits and zoning significantly simpler and stop making the building code. So inflationary, um, like we have, and I think we have the slowest and most restrictive, um, building, uh, process in the second, second in the world, uh, or sorry, second in the OECD. Um, and yeah. Um, do we, I didn't know that doesn't surprise yeah. me though. Yes. Yeah, the Slovak uh, Republic is the only one with slower. Okay. So you'd put an emphasis on just fixing the supply demand ratio. Like let's just, yeah. let's just clear this up yeah. a little bit, produce a little bit more housing yeah. to tr true this up. Well, and, and to me that's more economically productive. Like you have people coming here producing houses. Like the, there's all, all of these, like Canada likes housing. 13% of our uh, GDP is residential investment. Like it's, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. No, it's insane. Yeah. No objection to like all of that existing, but like, let's just like, let's keep the machine running and let's keep building stuff like let's let's get to the actual productive part of um having a excess demand for housing where, which means that we're building a shit ton of houses mm -hmm. you know it's good for production of like bricks and flooring mm -hmm. and all of these other tertiary industries that spin off of it as a result of rather than just too many people who drive the price up mm -hmm. right anything else come to mind after that uh no but i did want to touch on like uh, yeah there isn't really anything i would i would uh do too much honestly like, okay yeah what were you uh, going to touch on uh just the the thing that you were mentioning about um the we were talking about household savings before and, and, uh, and Bitcoin and, and stuff like that. And I think that, um, the, the one distinction that's important is like, I, I don't blame, and I don't, I wouldn't say that Canadians are stupid or anything for spending so much money. Like they literally did the right thing because money was becoming worthless. So it was like, your money is literally better spent on anything, a jet ski, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like anything yeah. at that period of time. And so it's not to say, it's not a reflection that I think that it was like an economically bad decision. Actually, like, if you were to look at how cheap you could get money and how badly money was being devalued at that period of time, it was the right thing to do. 
Yeah, that's fair. And I look at that too. Um, I Have you looked into artificial intelligence a little bit yet and yeah. going down that path? Um, when I start to see, have you seen the video of Chipotle where they make the burrito bowl with all the robot hands yeah. and it just pops out at the end and the human like just packages it? Yeah. There's a, I think there's a, a drive-thru in Mc, a McDonald's in Texas or Seattle, I forget where, for McDonald's that has no employees, but it's yeah. just a drive-thru only. I know of a couple car plants that are being put together now that are going to have no need for humans. It'll just be all robots, which also means no need for light in the factory, no need for like HVAC at like room temperature, no yeah. need for staff parking or cafeterias or HR. And when I see some of that, and then I think forward to your world where you're talking about, hey, we don't have to own real estate. You can be happy and do something that you're really good at and live, you know, just like Switzerland, half the yeah. population is renting there and they're obviously living a good life. I think everybody knows that Switzerland is probably a pretty decent place to live. Um, does I wonder if AI just picks up so much of the demographic fall off that we're entering a new phase, which which we've all thought like, oh my gosh, we need a lot of immigration because yeah. the demographics are really falling off and every country around the world is having, every Western country is having this problem. They really need to prop up population. I wonder if we're entering a new world like five years from now that we can't even envision because of the amount of AI and robotics that's really going to change the productivity of our economies. Totally. I think that... Um could likely take a lot longer than you're describing. Mm. But like, I think five years probably it, it's like that Bill Gates quote, right? It's like people mm -hmm. underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years, but overestimate what they can accomplish in one year. And I think, but I think that at some point in the future and it coincides with, um, you know, creating more specialized housing systems as an example, like I, there's a version of the future in which we're either like taken care of by robots or ruled by robots. Like really, you know, um, you would thinking, hope that they're benevolent and that it's the, the, the latter, but I yeah. used to think the wealth divide would always be like, you know, who owned assets and who didn't own assets. And that might then extrapolate down to the quality of food that you're eating just because as everything gets more expensive, you know, the people who have some cash are going to be able to order good uh, or, um, buy good quality food and eat good quality food. And, you know, other people may not be able to, and there'd just be this wealth divide. I like the future that you kind of paint a little bit better than I do in that you're saying there'd just be a change and, you know, everything doesn't have to look like it is today. Well, but, like, I think that you would just go up the value. It's funny because like you could say, oh, it's like a wealth divide, but then the jobs that are most likely to disappear are the lower um, mm -hmm. value ones, let's call it, right? Like, because they're easier for a robot to do. And it's so, so it's like, well, okay, people who, and this isn't my perspective, but like, this is like, okay, like let's say the economy rewards people with lower skills less. Mm -hmm. Um, but now all of a sudden they're getting rewarded by being replaced by robots and they're probably having to go on UBI. Right. And so like, it's like, okay, if you have if you don't have a skill to do anything now, you just don't have a job and you never will again and just go like enjoy life. And like the outcome, do, do you remember that? Um, there's like a documentary from like 15 years ago called Zeitgeist Addendum. Okay. Yeah. I think I did see the addendum. <laughs> Right, it was, it was like, a multi-part series, and then there was this add-on. Yeah, well, so like Zeitgeist, I think was like about the uh, World Trade Center collapse, but um, okay. like it was like a, the inside job thing. What was, was like the, the addendum? I think it I was saw just it. like a. It was just called Zeitgeist Addendum, and it was like a. Uh, it just, it, they predicted sort of like the discussions that we're having today, which is fascinating for me because I, I remember watching this like in high school, um, and it was like, yeah, like in the future, technology will advance enough that like technology will take care of us. Like you can automate away mm -hmm. a lot of these tasks and stuff, and and. And then like you would need something like a, a universal basic income to like reconcile for the gaps. So I think a lot of this um, wealth divide that like in disparity that's happening is like right now is will actually be ironic in the future because people with high skills who get compensated and have a lot of money still have to work, you know, and like what yeah. really is yeah, the yeah. point of being rich? Like I, I, 
I work a yeah, lot. Yeah, you want purpose in your life right. too. Yes. But yeah, but I think like I work a lot because I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people work a lot to accumulate wealth so that they can work less, I think, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and I'm, maybe in the future I will like work less and that will be my, out, my, my target outcome. But I think, um, you know, it ends up being a bottom-up innovation, I think. Like you're not going to innovate away doctors and stuff like that, mm. right? It's going to be like factory workers. The only thing, the only thing that kind of shocked me, I was listening to this Joe Rogan podcast, I think last week where he had Sam Altman on the guy, one of the founders of chat GPT yeah, yeah. talking about putting Neuralink into someone's brain. And that, that, you know, they were just going back and forth on hypothetical scenarios. And they're like, they're not that far away. They thought with either Elon on what he's doing yeah. or what someone else is going to do where an engineer could just pop a chip in their brain mm-hmm. that would, as they're working on some new design of something, be able to go search out the internet yeah. for some computational calculations. Yeah. And that person isn't like the the job that I thought was going to be replaced, but maybe now that one engineer is able to do far more, far more and replace a bunch of engineers. But then maybe those other engineers can work on other projects because they're not needed on that project. And maybe it's a better for humanity, but I just thought, wow, like I always thought some class of jobs might disappear before others. And maybe it's like multiple classes of jobs all changing at the same time. Yeah. I guess it depends on like how productive it makes us as a society. Yeah. Like, I mean, personally right now, like when I use chat GPT as an example, like it makes me marginally more productive, but not significantly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think as like, as, that productivity increases, it's like almost like, do we reach a point of like technological singularity, right? Like, are we at a point where technology can self develop? So it feels like we're getting closer to it. And if you, yeah, if you extrapolate out like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, how old are you right now? Uh, 31. So when you're like 81, yeah, like in the techno, the pace of technology right now, yeah, like, holy shit, where is that? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's wild. Is it's Daniel just maintaining the machines that are taking care of it? Yeah, and I'm just a battery in <laughs> the matrix. Battery. Damn, we've got full circle. <laughs> yeah. Shit. No, I, I don't know. It's like, it, it, uh, whoever knows the answer to the question oh is going to no, be so yeah, rich. Yeah. <laughs> like, Agreed. But um, I think it's like, it's anyone's game. Like, you know, you also look at the Jetsons and they thought we'd have flying Yeah, yeah, right no, agreed. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Who knows? Like, who knows where like, we're headed? But it's just like, can we stay good enough as a species that we use this, like these things for good that, you know, like, I think the guy who started with the idea of technological singularity was like originally, um, he had it like 2045 and then now it's like he's moved up to 2035. So I guess like we'll have an answer in 10 years, right? It was just when I, when I heard about this one factory being built with no humans and the new, fa- the new robots that could go in and pull the small boxes off the uh, the trucks that were going to be delivering stuff, they can watch other robots and learn how to do it. And they had the tactical ability now to handle small screws and yeah. nuts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I thought, oh man, that's coming online. And I was under the impression that's coming on. I'm sworn to secrecy on the, I'm by this, so I can't mention, I'll tell you offline a little bit more detail, but it's like 16, 18 months away from this one factory coming online that's right. not going to have any humans. And I'm like, holy shit, it's mm-hmm. just a little bit faster than I thought, mm-hmm. you know, with no cafeteria, with no HR, with no parking, with no lighting needs, mm-hmm. if they yeah. don't want to, with no HVAC, you don't have to keep it room temperature. And I'm like, holy shit, this is just kind of wild. This yeah, is like, it's a Black Mirror episode. It totally, that's what someone else said. I've never watched this show, but that's oh, what someone else responded. Yeah, I know, I know, I heard it. I heard it's really good. So uh, it's just dark, like have some eye bleach prepared for after. <laughs> oh, Actually, yeah. it's like, it's there's like one or two that, uh, episodes that are like super uplifting. Like they're probably some of the best film I've ever seen. And that like San Junipero is like one of the episodes. Okay. It's like uh, remarkable. Maybe start with that one. It'll make you feel The other good. ones are depressing. All of them are like where so are you, dark. Where are you going to live in the next few years? You're 
have a young family. Do you see yourself splitting your time maybe a bit in Switzerland, a bit in Canada, a bit down south somewhere? Like, could you see, because I see that in my future, which I never really envisioned before. I'm like, right. oh my gosh, I clearly see that I'm likely going to spend a bit of time in Croatia, yeah. a bit of time down south somewhere, and a bit of time in Canada. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll always be a Canadian citizen. Yeah. I don't know, maybe not. We'll see how this goes. But, uh, but I can see myself roving around a little bit more than I ever could before. Right. How about you, someone your age? Yeah, I would Do you think about that at all? Yeah, I think like I, I'm I'm kind of like in that social experiment phase of like, how many meetings can I get away with not being at? Right? Mm-hmm. Like how many meetings can actually be phone calls? Because um, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, right? Like, you, but young family, you're gonna grow, you're growing roots here. They're gonna yeah. go to school here, make friends here. Do you you have family here? Yeah, but uh, I mean, my my family travels a lot too. Yeah. And like, I don't. I mean, there's just as much to be said for like your children growing up to be citizens of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and being able to meet people wherever and still be able to have the skills to stay in touch with their friends back home. Like, are they really missing out on life experiences, or are they getting? better or different life experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know the answer to the question, but that's the thought process mm-hmm. that I would have around it. I can track the inter- Toronto Maple Leafs wherever I am. Yeah. yeah pretty good. Yeah. Dude, you're like a, a young international man of mystery. I really <laughs> love the pat. No, the, the information you share, the background you have, the fact that you have this dump truck roaming around making money for you as well. Yeah, right. Like there is a lot of stuff going on. There's more stuff that we didn't even get to that I know about you that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But uh, I think we need more people like you sharing perspectives like you share. Yeah, I just want to thank you for everything you do because I can imagine the feedback you get for some of the stuff you share. I don't know how you handle it. I don't know, it's just like, I don't really listen. Like at the end of the day, I look in the mirror and I'm <laughs> yeah. happy. Like I yeah, really totally. care about like the opinions of like two people, yeah. just, like my wife and my kids. Yeah. So, you know? so I think you're benefiting all of us by just putting out your perspective. The way you think about the real estate market is different. So I just want to thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It means yeah, a lot. I mean, it's like commentary that like that, that makes it worthwhile. So yeah, I think there's a, probably a whole bunch of silent people out there that really take a lot of value because yeah. if you're not listening, if you haven't um, followed Daniel on Twitter, I know you're on TikTok as well and Instagram, I would imagine. Yeah. I see you mostly on Twitter. Yeah. But the stuff that you share, it's really good like economic updates that I think is really practical and you're doing it in real time. Yeah, I just try and like take um, relatively complex issues and make them digestible for like the average person. I, I don't really know where I thought of the idea, but it just seems to be something that I'm decent at. So I've just been doing that as much as I can. And, um, and if you sat on the international monetary funds website and took some of their courses, I know you're a monetary geek and you're coming yeah, from yeah. a place of like loving this stuff. Cause yeah. nobody does that. Yeah. Check those courses out. They're really cool. I'm not like, taking anything up from the international yeah, monetary. I like that you did it, yeah, but uh, maybe I'll look at them now yeah. that you've said that I'll probably go over to the website and go, what the fuck did, yeah, what did he look, what did he take? Yeah. So if you go to edX, it's like a thing done by Harvard and like MIT, they have like a bunch of curriculum online like um, and you took value from these courses it taught yeah. you i guess like about the the plumbing of the internet the current system yeah there's like a lot of things that it taught me i would say but yeah like that the i guess that's like the whole mechanics of yeah. it yeah like all of the sort of yeah. features of it that you and don't just really so get bitter on the you know like i guess where a lot of some of my a lot of some of my a lot of my frustration comes from seeing my parents work so hard right my father started up a company. Before that, he was working drywall, getting up at 5 a.m. I saw him pay off the mortgage. He had to take a mortgage back on um, the house through our journey, but um, then save up a bit of money. And then he's just not an investor. Yeah. And then to see that be debased on him after seeing how he worked, like working construction in the winter on condos, that is not easy work. For sure. And to see his savings be devalued the way it was and him not understanding why, Mm 
to me, that frustrates me. And I, I guess it frustrates me more deeply than I've ever known. Like, and it, maybe it's just me, like that's my family's history. So it, it frustrates me and it, maybe it doesn't need to as much as it does. But for me, it feels like they ripped a part of something away from them. Yeah, D- but does your dad feel that way? I don't think he's aware of why. Um, no, I wouldn't say he feels the way the way yeah. I articulate it. No. Yeah, I don't know. Like I think about like um, my Opie who came here. Like I guess my my parents would be like I'm a little bit older than than you, but um, you know, like similar kind of like generational mm-hmm. thing. My my Opie and Omi both came here from Europe. Um, Opie was from um, Romania, like during the Romani genocide in um, World War Two, and um, I, I mean for him, like and and he had like a lot of crazy stuff happen in his like real estate journey, actually. But like similar thing, stonemason. Worked his ass off, um, lost some some amazing real estate holdings that would be worth probably billions today to, oh, to fraud. Crazy oh, enough, shit. like one of the reasons that title insurance exists today. I'll send you an article. No. Yeah, crazy, crazy story. Yeah, um, but uh, and and yes, yeah, somebody registered a mortgage on his title. But anyway, for him, like the guy, his like his he would be happy to know that he got to live in Canada. He didn't have to live in Romania. Mm-hmm. And that his kids got to have a chance in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, so that was his bare minimum. I remember having these conversations with him on the way up to the hunt camp when I was a kid, uh, you know, he'd tell me war stories and then he would talk to me and I was wow. like, well, you know, like what, and it was, it was just, uh, like that, that was it. Like that was, you know, and I don't, I think that yeah. a lot of that thinking is gone, but you might just be surprised that like, you you know, your dad, yeah, it's, like, it, it's like, bothering me more than yeah. it bothers him. When he, and he like earned you the privilege to be, yeah. to be yeah, concerned about grateful. things like this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> Daniel, so what, what, you know, if anyone wants to work with you, I don't even fully know, like who's yeah. your perfect client. If someone's listening and like, I want to reach out to this guy or do you take on new clients? Yeah. Do you not? Yeah. So who do you work with? What do you do? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I make a lot of content and like, I've kind of figured out, I, I guess how to get into like the business of content. So the podcast, well, we have a podcast, the Canadian real estate investor podcast. It would be Canada's number one real estate podcast at the moment. Um, which we're, we're really grateful for. Um, and we're on the network with, uh, the Canadian investor podcast, which a lot of people awesome. probably know. Yeah. So, um, check that out. We try and have pretty similar like kind of conversations, but less, we don't do it. Like we notice that a lot of guys are really doing well in the interview space, yourselves included. So we don't really do interviews at all. It's like very like research driven talking about, cool. um, event or sorry, current events and like policy and analytics or, or sorry, uh, a deal analysis. And so stuff you do like real research and data. Yeah. We should look into that approach. We yeah. just talk, we turn on the mics and speak. Well, there's like, there's room for both, I think. Right. It's yeah, just like, sure. it, was, it would have been yeah, impossible yeah. for us to enter the same space. Cause like, cause people like you and there's so many other groups that are doing like the interview thing really well. Mm-hmm. It was just like, we didn't feel like we had, thank to you. That's that. weird for me to hear, but thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, no problem. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, if people want to listen to the podcast, otherwise, um, just like follow me on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, whatever platform. Um, I love helping people, you know, build wealth and invest in real estate, similar to you guys. Um, and just trying to fight the good fight. And, uh, I think over time, like want to get more into financial education and stuff like that and less doing deals. You huh, know, like that's interesting. It, yeah. So you'll develop that side of you more and more, turn yeah. it into something where it's more like an actual business for you. Yeah, we're kind of in it right now. Are you? Yeah, I mean, the podcast does well. Like it does like reasonably well. Like it would be like, I don't know, like a small salary for like, it would be below the um, average household income, I suppose, in Canada for for each of the people involved. Yeah, Yeah, but it's like, you know, it's it's enough. It makes it worth doing. Um, and then, you know, the remainder is like, we're really trying to build out this like course, this online course for, for real estate investors. We're in our current, like we have a cohort right now. We have 20 great students and they're really like just kind of market validating it for awesome. us. Like they're like helping us cultivate the system. Cause we don't really know. Right. And it's going to change on an annual basis. Like 2024 
is there's a very different set of rules sure. than there was in 2022, uh, you know? Oh my gosh. When yeah. we started this business, I remember telling people, listen, we focus on cash flow. We go out into these tertiary markets, these secondary yeah. markets around Toronto. Yeah. And they were like so pissed off. I was like, you don't know how to make the big money. Yeah. You guys don't yeah. understand. Because we yeah. were talking about cash flow of like $350 a month on a property. That's right. pretty good. Hold it for a long time. Yeah. You'll, you know, you'll get through the ups and downs and they would just laugh at us right. and say, hey, I'm just going to go buy these pre-construction condos because you guys don't yeah. know how to make the big money. You don't, your mindset is too small. This is how you make the big money. But it's because of our family history, knowing that you have to survive the ups and downs that yeah. we were always drawn to starter homes because they're most liquid, a yeah. little bit of cash flow, so that, you know, through bad times, you don't have to like put money into the property. Yeah. And, uh, and then you're right. And we did that because times change. And that was a property that we thought through different economic situations, you could always hang on to and survive. Yeah. So when you're putting a course together, like you guys are doing, you have to take into all these different environmental factors, interest rate factors, population growth factors, all these different types of thinking. So it can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it like it changed. It's, it's not a time tested and true thing. Like there, there are, there are certain rules that can, and tenets that can be applied over time, but like the way that you, that you get those things are, are very different. Like, um, you know, cash flow posit- positivity as an example, like, and this is really where I'm going to be focusing my energy probably for the next 10 years. Like, and I think it could, this could be an existing opportunity for 20 years is, is taking existing housing stock and like the adaptive reuse of existing housing stock from my, my perspective, it checks all the boxes. It's got the sexy ESG stuff, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's like the house already existed. You're mm-hmm. going to convert it to multiple units. It's how it's affordable. So you housing. think so? Cause I think the exact same, that yeah. is a yeah. huge. Yeah. I have a dream that one day Forest Hill will be called Fourplex Hill. Mm. That's a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, but I see, I see where you're headed. I see where you're headed. Take the McMansions and like my generation can't afford those houses and doesn't, it it doesn't want that Mm -hmm. big of a house. Like, I think for your generation, this is such a huge opportunity. Like, like I mentioned, I'm mentioning this to my son who's 21. I'm like, Aiden, this opportunity is absolutely massive right now in this area. When you think about like, so everybody's like the baby boomers, like this demographic, our entire economy is built around keeping their entitlement system alive by through immigration. Mm -hmm. Like that's actually what's happening right now. Um, they're all the ones who hold these assets. Like they all have, they're, they're overhoused by 80%. Mm-hmm. Most of them, mm-hmm. right. They're all sitting in four bedroom and they're, yeah. hip, they're a hip replacement away from needing a new house. <laughs> so, right? I really. shouldn't laugh, but it's, it's so true. Really? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. they, they can't go, once they can't go upstairs, it's like, okay, well, what do we do yeah. now? You know? And, and once they start selling at scale, this is like my only scenario in which Canada ends up with like mm-hmm. a sustained downturn yeah, in yeah. house prices. Right. If, if it I, comes on mass. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, just what, well, well, think how many homes in Mississauga have, uh, I mean, my parents live in Mississauga, right? Yeah. Uh, my mom is in her late seventies. My dad in her, his early eighties. Right. I guess the house would be 2,700 or 800 square feet. Right. Well, too much walkout basement pool in the back, yeah. way too much yeah. for them. Yeah. If you have that coming onto the market altogether within a short window, yeah. that could change the market. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and then you can see it in the population pyramid. Like, there's two humps in the population pyramid. There's the boomers who own all the square footage, and then there's the next generation who can't afford that square mm-hmm. footage. And what are we going to do with it to make it better for those people? Mm-hmm. To me, so I like, think then the message then for maybe people younger than you, because you're obviously very capable in many different things that you can make money in, is just develop your skills, add value to the market, and you're always going to be okay. 
for sure. Like just continue to develop your own skill set and yeah. maybe chase, I don't mean to sound cheesy, but whatever you like doing, explore that a little bit because you're going to like it so much that you'll just spend a lot of time yeah. in it, which means you'll get really good at it. I hate saying that because sometimes no, that sounds true. very motivational no. and you can't that monetize. Is, that's logic as well. Yeah. It just seems like if you're good enough at something, people will pay you for it financially. Like it doesn't, there's yeah. a, this Japanese concept called ikigai. Do you know what it yes. is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's exactly what you're describing, mm. right? It's Iki like. Can you explain that for people? It's basically the intersection of like the, the, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, what you can be the best at and what you enjoy doing. Right. And so in the center of that thing is your icky guy. It's this purpose. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I, I don't know. I think, and I think a lot of people, a lot of young people, um, shit, man, like the amount of times that I've like made mistakes, I've been like, Oh, like I really like this thing. And then you like do it. You put a lot of capital or time or energy and you hate, hate it. it. It's like, you got like, you, you could guess right now that like, you, you know, and this is like why post-secondary post -secondary education is kind of like messed up. Right. Cause you're like, yeah. Oh shit. Like I'm going to go spend four years and, and several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So understand that like passion can also be cultivated, right? Like you, you have to be there in the trenches, like really working on the things that you, you want to try like, and to see, cause you never know until you actually, so, and, and that like you, you figure that out by doing it, not by mm -hmm. just thinking about it and wondering and reading about it and whatever. Right. I could keep you here for hours chatting about stuff. Daniel, really appreciate you doing this. I really appreciate yeah, you pleasure. coming out to Oakville. Thank you for everything you're doing. We'll link to all your social handles in the show notes for this episode. And uh, yeah, that's it, man. Totally appreciate this. Thank Anything else you want to share? No, no. Yeah. I'm just are, you, really are, are you also a Leafs fan or no? It's, oh, they shit. make that's it really no. hard, right? They no. make it really that hard. That was a no. Yeah. That breath was a no. <laughs> they make oh, it shit. hard. I was. This is know? the year, man. Yeah. This is the year. Yeah, okay. You're all in the bandwagon. I'll There's take the other side it. of that bag. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey everyone, hopefully you enjoyed enjoyed that chat with Daniel. His Twitter handle is at Daniel underscore underscore Foch, F-O-C-H. So at Daniel underscore Foch, F-O-C-H. And his podcast is the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast that he co-hosts with his friend, Nick Hill. You can find him there as well. And we will link to those on the show notes of this particular episode. And if you are listening to this and you want to explore this thing that we're running called the Rockstar Inner Circle, you can find more about that membership by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash member. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.